Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Where we're continuing our exposition of the book of Genesis. Pray with me. Father, we come before you marveling at who you are. The creator of heaven and earth and all they contain. Father, we're thankful for your word, which tells us things we could never know if you had not inspired men of old to write these things down. Father, we want to live for you. We want to know you. We want to glorify you. We want to be like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we come before you asking for many things. And Father, we pray for our seniors who are at various stages of growing old. Their outer man is decaying and more trips to the hospital and aches and pains and doctors and hospitals as their outer man, which was only designed to last for a short time, is now at the end of its functionality and soon they will pass from this world into the spiritual realm. And Father, we are thankful that though our outer man decays, yet our inner man is renewed day by day and that those who know you live even if they die. We're thankful that our hope is not in this world or in our bodies or in our ability, but Father, in you. And as we look this morning at your word, as we consider things that are very controversial in the world, but very plain in your word, may we leave here marveling that you are the great God, creator, sustainer of all that is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen Hawking said, quote, because there is no law such or because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists and why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to set the universe going, end quote. So says Stephen Hawking when asked why he doesn't believe in God. He believes gravity is God. Matter is God. That gravity and matter are eternal. That gravity can create things out of nothing. That gravity gives purpose to our lives and the meaning of the universe. So then, according to Hawking, the chief end of man is to glorify gravity. (laughs) And there is no heaven, and there is no hell. There is no holy God, no judgment to come, no right, no wrong, no morals. You can do what you want. You can rob, you can cheat, you can steal, you can commit any sort of twisted, perverted immorality. It doesn't matter if what Hawking says is true. Hawking scoffs at faith, and yet he is the champion of faith. Faith in what has never been observed. Faith in which, really, only somebody who has lost their mind 
can believe. Though he is brilliant, he is, in the words of Scripture, a fool. Faith he has in something that doesn't even practically work. Faith in what is a failure and a destroying influence in any individual life and or any group or social group or culture that has ever applied his beliefs has totally been destroyed and come to naught. Puritan Matthew Henry said, quote, There was not any pre-existent matter out of which the world was produced. The fish and the fowl were indeed produced out of the waters and the beasts and man out of the earth, but that earth and those waters were made out of nothing. By the ordinary power of nature, it is impossible that anything should be made out of nothing. No artificer can work unless he has something to work on. By the almighty power of God, it is not only possible that something should be made of nothing. The God of nature is not subject to the laws of nature. But in the creation, it is impossible. It should be otherwise, for nothing is more injurious to the honor of the eternal mind than the supposition of eternal matter, end quote. It is an insult to God. To say that matter has always existed. John Calvin speaking of the meaning of Moses' words in Genesis 1.1 said. Quote. Therefore his meaning is that the world was made out of nothing. Hence the folly of those is refuted who imagine that unformed matter existed from eternity. And who gather nothing else from the narration of Moses than that the world was furnished with some new ornaments and received a form of which it was before destitute. This indeed was formerly a common fable among the heathens who had received only an obscure report of creation and who, according to custom, adulterated the truth of God with strange figments. But for Christian men to labor, as Steacus does, in maintaining this gross error is observed and intolerable, end quote. It is really an assault on God to deny creation. It's an assault on God to believe in evolution. It's not Christian. It's anti-God, anti-Christian. And when you look at the world, when you look at the things that are out there, the only way you can arrive at everything came from nothing is like Thomas Watson said, when men fell... They fell so hard, they hit their heads and their brains tumbled out. (laughs) I've been blessed to see some incredible sights on this planet. Beautiful rivers, crystal clear, clear spring creeks, running through grassy mountain meadows. I've walked through dense forests that were full of ferns and moss growing on the trees. I've woken up while living in the forest to 20 inches of fresh fallen snow. I have seen the rugged moon-like landscape of craters of the moon. I have been in the Colorado desert after a very strong rain and seen the entire desert purple with flowers with millions of butterflies. I have been out at sea when the sky was perfect. Perfectly calm, 
and clear and there was really hardly any wind and what happens is and what's really neat is there's some this little effect that fishermen called a sea emerald it's uh, usually referred to by scientists as a green flash but we call them sea emeralds anyways when you look out over the horizon when the big when the sun as it grows close to the horizon the infrared uh, rays which are longer wavelength begin to make the sun redder and redder that it begins to set down on the horizon, the sun goes from really white to orange to red, this big red ball. And as it comes down on the ocean, and right when it's setting, if the boat just happens to be rising up on a swell for just about one second, there is this bright green flash called a sea emerald. Very few, few people have ever seen it. I've seen it many times. It's, it's, it's amazing. You just think, did that just happen? I have laid on my back on a cold, crisp, perfectly clear night at 8,500 feet elevation in the month of August, where you could see the stars so clearly that you could see the band of the Milky Way, and we just watched as showers of meteorites came through the atmosphere and then burnt up. I have scuba dived out in the open sea uh, somewhere between Hawaii and Japan and uh, where there was literally thousands of squid about three and a half feet long all around me. I have gone through Hezekiah's tunnel, that tunnel that Hezekiah had his men dig that goes right into the old city of Jerusalem that is full of water. And as you get into the tunnel, the water gets higher and higher and the ceiling lower and lower until there's only about one foot of space. You have to turn your head so you can breathe and it's pitch black. I've heard Roosevelt elk bugling at twilight, and I've seen bucks lock horns in the fall rut. I've observed a mother quail with about 20 little chicks about the size of ping pong balls with legs. <laughs> I've stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon. I've floated through the depths of Hell's Canyon. I've gazed over New York City from the Empire State Building. I've seen a leopard in the wilds of Africa and seen bald eagles plunge into a river to draw out a very large trout. I have fly fish next to buffalo in Yellowstone Park and moose in Harriston, Har- Harriman State Park and deer in the South Fork of the Boise River. And I have had the privilege of walking through the forest on many occasions during all seasons of the year and heard no cars, no planes, no motors. Just the sound of the forest and the forest creatures. God has blessed me and I have seen many incredible things. And yet, as much as I have seen, there are still many things I would like to see. I would love to see the Mediterranean world and the Parthenon and Greece and uh, the ruins of Ephesus and the Colosseum in Rome and the Mayan and Aztec ruins in Mexico and Machu Picchu and the Forbidden City in China. And even if I could see all the things I know about, the world has so many more things to see that I could never see all the marvels and wonders that are in the world that tell me there is a great God. Not only are there marvels that you can just observe plainly, they're down to the microscopic level. There are marvels inside of atoms and marvels in the far reaches of outer space. 
We just don't even have a concept of how huge things are out there. Outer space is just amazing, full of stars and comets and nebula and all sorts of bizarre things out there we're still discovering. And the average galaxy is about 600 million miles across. The average distance between galaxies is some 20 million trillion miles Astronomers quit using miles. They don't use miles. They're too small. They use light years. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. A beam of light shot gets the moon in about two seconds, second and a half. Zip. Traveling at that speed, 186,000 miles per second for a year, is a light year. A distance of about six trillion miles. The closest galaxy to our galaxy, the Milky Way, is the Andromeda Galaxy. It is three million light years away. You can do the math later when you get home. Andromeda Galaxy, all you got to do is multiply three million times six trillion, and you know how far it is away. So if you could travel 186,000 miles per second... It would take 3 million years to get to the closest galaxy. I mean, that would take a very large odometer. (laughs) Scientists knew that the universe was big until the Hubble telescope. Now they know it is beyond their ability to comprehend. They can't even see to the edge of the universe. They can take a telescope and point it into any direction and they can zoom up on just a fragment of a spot, a pixel on the night sky and see hundreds of galaxies. It's huge. It is mind-boggling huge. And yet... As big as the universe is, to God, it's just a little tiny speck of light in the vastness of his being. It's less than chump change. And from the intricately designed particles that make up the matter we know about to the far reaches of outer space, it is clear there is a creator. And as we've recently started an exposition on the book of Genesis, we're learning about the God who made all things. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, tells us things that are antithetical to what most of the world believes and insists is true. It's antithetical to those who do not believe in creation. The Bible is antithetical to those who don't believe in six-day creation. It is antithetical to those who don't believe in a worldwide flood. It is antithetical to those who don't believe in a young earth. The plain meaning of Genesis has been relentlessly attacked and the whole Bible and the gospel in the process because men do not want to believe God nor do they want to submit to God. 
And last week we learned that Genesis is the inspired word of God. It is inerrant and infallible. When men come up with ideas that contradict what the Bible says, God must be found true and every man be a liar. We've been talking, taking a close look at Genesis 1-1 where we see the time of creation in the beginning, the person of creation, God, the action God took, he created, and what God created, the heavens and the earth. And we've taken a lot of time. We're slow, going slow, especially in these first verses. They're packed because they are foundational words to really the whole of the Bible and the reason why we exist. And so if you have your Bibles, you can look at Genesis 1-1. I'm going to read down through verse 5 where we read these significant words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. This morning we want to consider three things. First, God in eternity past. Second, that God created. And thirdly, what God created. Last week we learned that the word God here is the Hebrew word Elohim, and it's a unique word because it has a masculine plural ending, though it refers to a singular God. There's only a few words in Hebrew that do this. And the question is why? They don't really know. Some have said, well, it probably is because it just kind of amplifies God by putting, you know, a plural ending on there. And some say it kind of is an allusion to his many attributes or the many facets of his character or his being, that he is infinite, uh, or maybe even allusion to the Trinity. We know that the Trinity is certainly found uh, in its seed form in the book of Genesis because we see God in verse 1. We see the Holy Spirit in verse 2. We see God speaking of himself in the second person, plural, when he says, let us make man in verse 26 of chapter 1. And then again in chapter 11, verse 7, concerning the Tower of Babel. We also see the Messiah as Savior in Genesis 3.15 mentioned. So there's a lot of really uh, seed material here to develop the Trinity. But when you look at the rest of the Bible, it's just beyond dispute. The God of Genesis 1.1 is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who together as a team created the heavens and the earth and all they contain. We may discover... When we get to heaven, that God has many creations, many dramas taking place, many uh, different realms. He is infinite, remember. He doesn't get tired. He could, if he wanted to, uh, do what the string theory supposes, that there are an infinite number of parallel realities all running at the same time, each playing out every possible option that could be played out. He could do that. Who knows what God is doing? He certainly has not told us everything he has done or will do. But what he has told us is that in the beginning, he created everything. Now, we've already looked at God a little bit uh, just in this text, but we ran out of time. So we're going to look at him some more. And what we want to look at this morning is God before creation. God before creation. Now, you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, how do you talk about that? 
I mean, Genesis 1-1 does start in the beginning. And if you go before Genesis 1-1, you know, the page right before that is blank in the Bible. So there's really nothing on there that you can see. Um, there's nothing to talk about. I mean, there's, there, what do we do? What do we say, you know, about before anything? Well, think about it. Can you think of anything that the Bible teaches us that tells us about now? Before anything existed, this happened. There's actually quite a bit. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Do you remember the prophecy of Christ's birth in Micah chapter 5 verse 2? Where Micah the prophet writes, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Right there we learn about something. Jesus went around, was moving, was doing things before eternity. The babe born in Bethlehem is none other than the eternally existing God who was going forth before eternity. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 Verse 34, speaking of the the judgment of the sheep and the goats and the parable of the sheep and the goats, speaks of the sheep as believers, the goats as unbelievers, makes some interesting comments. He says, then the king will say to those in his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now that is interesting. You mean God uh, from the very foundation of the world uh, as he started to create? He already had thought about everything that was going to happen. The fall of man, the sin, sending Jesus, Jesus coming back in glory, setting up a kingdom, all of that, all of that. Yes. Peter in 1 Peter 1.20 says, says of Jesus, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Notice Jesus was known before the foundation of the world. There was a relationship between the persons of the triune Godhead before the world began. Jesus told the Pharisees that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. They in turn mocked Jesus saying to him in John eight fifty seven, you are not yet 50 years old and you're telling us you've seen Abraham. And Jesus then shocked them with this statement in John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. He uses ego emi, the Greek equivalent of the unutterable four-letter name, the ineffable tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Yah-Heh-Yoth-Heh in the Hebrew. That word, that memorial name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush when Moses said, Who shall I say sent, sent, sent me when I go to deliver your people uh, or our people or my people from Egypt? I mean, who am I going to say? What name am I going to use? What, what's your name? And God says, I am that I am. That's my name. I exist. And that's the name that Jesus used. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 5? You're probably thinking, no, I'm going to tell you. He says this, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus had glory with the Father before the world was. Think about that. What was that glory like? We don't know, but it was glorious. 
Jesus had a relationship and had a glorious relationship with the Father before the world was. Later on, he prays, uh, continues to pray in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. Think about it. Think about it. There was a relationship. So we know that even before Genesis 1-1, the Father loved the Son. But that's not all. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, tells us of another love that God had for persons. The Apostle Paul tells us about something the triune God did before the world was created when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And here it is. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That is so radical. That God in eternity past considered who he would save. He, he knows everything. He knew Satan would rebel. He knew Adam and Eve would fall. He knew that the world would proceed from bad to worse. He knew sinners would be lost and enslaved to their sin and that Satan would work to keep them damned. He knew all of that. He knew that he would come to the earth. He knew he would die on a cross. He knew he would rise again. He knew he would, by grace, draw unworthy sinners to himself that they would be holy and blameless with him for all eternity. All of it was planned out before the world was. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9, describing God as the one who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus. Here it is. From all eternity. From all eternity. The triune God decided in eternity past to pick, choose, elect, and predestine some unworthy sinners to himself. Which means he was influenced by none to do that. It was before anything of his own purpose. He did not look into the future to see who was going to seek him and then in response to them seeking him and being saved, decide to choose them in response. No, he saved them because there are none who seek after God. There are none who understand. There are none who do good. There is not even one. That is mankind without the grace of God. All going astray. All running towards the cliff of hell and glad to do so. The God in eternity past before the heavens and the earth were created picked certain unworthy sinners who deserved hell to be saved by grace and draw to himself to grant repentance, to give saving faith that he might save them, that they might be with him forever. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, Paul and Barnabas had just preached the gospel. And listen to what Luke writes. When the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here it is. And as many... As we're appointed to eternal life, believed. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, right after he says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Think about it. If you know Jesus Christ, think about this. If you know and love the Lord. That God is the God who saves unworthy sinners. The three persons of the Trinity talked about you. Thought about you. Saw every sin you would ever commit. Saw your rebellion and for reasons unknown to us, chose, elected, predestined, apart from anything we did, to put saving grace upon us, dross to himself, that we might be holy and blameless in his presence forever. That, that is amazing. Especially when you consider that you're really no better than anybody else. There's only sinners who need Jesus and sinners who have Jesus. This is such a foundational truth in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that you can't read your Bible and escape it. Especially at the beginning. And we're constantly called the elect, the chosen, the predestined. I mean, it's almost half the books of the New Testament start off that way. You know why? Because it's true. I've talked to people say, well, I don't believe in predestination election. Oh, so would you just rip those parts out of your Bible? I skip over them quick. And God even elects angels. The, the, the holy angels are even called chosen angels or elect angels in 1 Timothy 5.21. These truths are such an encouragement whether you know Jesus Christ or not. If you know Jesus Christ, it's just an encouragement. They all appear in the Bible to encourage you who know Jesus that God thought about you before the world began. That God knew everything about you before the world began. That God decided, not because of anything you did, but contrary to what you did, to extend mercy to you and then give you the grace that you need to open your heart to the truth, to give you illumination, to draw you to himself, to grant you repentance, to give you saving faith, and then to apply the blood of his son to you so you could escape the judgment you deserve. That is amazing. Of course, there are those who insult God and say, well, the reason I'm not a Christian is God hasn't elected me. Oh, really? So you've got a register of who he has elected and who he hasn't? Who he predestined and who he has not predestined? Well, well, no, but that's why I'm not. I said, listen, pal, if there are a group of people running towards a cliff to throw themselves off willingly of their own will, running towards the cliff to throw themselves off. And some cowboy would come along and rope the feet of one of those persons and snag them and drop them and drag them against their will and then tie them up until he could talk sense into them and then let them go free. Would you blame the cowboy because of all the people who jumped off the cliff? No, but that's what these people are doing. They're saying, the reason I'm in sin, the reason I love rebelling against God, the reason I love darkness rather than light, the reason I have rejected Jesus Christ is 
I'm imagining, although I don't know, that he has not elected me. And so I'm going to blame God for my rejection of his love gift to me. No, the message to unbelievers is this. Repent and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. That is the message to you who do not know Christ. And believe me, when God extends the olive leaf of salvation to you, and you knock his hand away and say, it's your fault, I didn't take it, you're going to find out different if you die without knowing Jesus Christ. The author of salvation is universal to all men. And if you reject it, you will understand by dear and terrifying experience that God was right and you were wrong. Salvation is all of God's doing and damnation is all of men's doing. When we get to heaven, we're going to know that the only reason we ever got to heaven is because of what God did. And everybody who gets cast into hell will know that the only reason they're in hell is because of what they did. Because the scriptures say they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Don't let election and predestination get in your way. Those doctrines are for believers only. They're written in the scriptures to encourage believers only. They're not part of the gospel message. The gospel message is that God has made a way for sinners. Believe in him. Turn from your sins. Trust Jesus Christ as your savior. There is a gospel train and everybody's invited to get on. And if you miss the train... It's your fault. As the old African-American spiritual published in 1872 says, the gospel train is coming. I hear it just at hand. I hear the car wheels moving and rumbling through the land. Get on board, children. Get on board, children. Get on board, children, for there's room for many a more. Now the gospel's train's at hand. Be in time. Be in time. Now the gospel train's at hand. Be in time. Crowds at the station stand with passport in their hand to start for Zion's land. Be in time. Be in time. To start for Zion's land. Be in time. Behold your station there. Jesus has paid your fare. Let's all engage in prayer. Be in time. Be in time. That is the message to every sinner. The gospel trains at hand. Jesus has paid your fare. Get on the train. And everyone knows who doesn't have a blind and foolish faith that everything did not come from nothing. Psalm 19, 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they were without excuse. I almost sneezed there, sorry. When you leave here today and you see a bird flying, 
let that impress you. We, we see things and we see them so much, they just become just, we just take it for granted that a lump of whatever a bird is made out of can fly. That it's living, that it has wings and it can fly. I saw a video clip where a guy said, yeah, we shouldn't complain when we have trials in the airport because, you know, we actually are sitting in a chair at 40,000 feet flying through the air. And you just look at plants. You know, so many people, they just look at plants as like, yeah, tree, bush, grass. Why don't you go up and look at them? Look at them. Get some, look at the bark. Look, look at a leaf. Pick a leaf and just look at a leaf. Look at a flower and say, how come all the petals are even? How come there's symmetry? How come the little, vine, the little veins and the leaves are symmetrical? How come each leaf just happened to be the same shape? Who tells the tree? Now, you're going to have uh, several hundred thousand leaves now. I want them all the same shape. But I want each one different. But I want them all to be the same shape. So anybody could pick any of the leaf and tell it's, you know, a live oak. I mean, think about that. It's incredible. It is incredible. And then as you're looking at the flowers and you're looking at the trees and you're looking at God's creation, then you just ask yourself, now, does this look like an accident? Do things like this happen accidentally? Please don't insult the creator and say it came from nothing. It can be clearly seen being understood through what has been made, that God exists. Everyone is without excuse, even the proverbial native in Africa. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write in the first verse of the Bible telling us God is the creator of all things. God wanted us to know from the very beginning that he is God. He is the one we must worship. He is the one we must praise. He is the one that we live for. He is the one who owns everything. He's the one who gives us meaning to life. It is all about God. All of creation is really nothing but a big billboard sign that says, Hi, I'm God. I'm here. Get to know me. Jeremiah 10 verse 11 says, Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. A totem pole has never created anything. A statue of Buddha has never created anything. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who did create everything. To acknowledge that God in the beginning was creator of heaven and earth and all they contain, visible and invisible, is to acknowledge there is no other gods, no other theories, no other reasons for existing, but to glorify God, the creator. There is no other owner or sustainer of all that exists, no one who is worthy of all glory and honor of praise, because God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And he planned it all. Before anything existed. He saw the end from the beginning. And he made it happen. Secondly, what God did in the beginning, he created. Notice there is an action word or verb in verse 1. That describes for us what God did. It says he created. Now, a lot of times we use create and kind of... uh, 
really a not technically correct way. You say, oh, that person has creative genius. It's like, oh, man, I have created a masterpiece. Or that person is very creative when really they're not. Rembrandt, for instance, was a master painter. And I have stood just a couple feet from his multi-million dollar paintings. And I have looked at them here and in London. And I've just, I've just marveled at how somebody with so few colors could paint something so amazing. But who gave Rembrandt his life? God. And his arms? God. And his health? God. And his brain? God. And his circumstances? God, who gave him his wood for his paintbrush handles, God, and the bristles, God, who gave him all those little pigments that he used to paint with, God, and the canvas, God. And so when we see his paintings, we should really praise God. He received from God all that he had, And he used that in a masterful way. Henry Morris notes, quote, the use of this word create here in Genesis informs us that at this point, the physical universe was spoken into existence by God. It had no existence prior to this primeval creative act of God. God alone is infinite and eternal. He is also omnipotent so that it was impossible so that it was possible for him to call the universe into a being. Although it is impossible for us to comprehend fully this concept of an eternal transcendent God, the only alternative is the concept of an eternal self existing universe, then this concept is also incomprehensible. Eternal God or eternal matter? That is the choice, end quote. What are you going to choose? Moore says Genesis 1-1 is the most important verse in all the Bible because in declaring that God created all that exists, it, quote, refutes all of man's false philosophies concerning the origin and meaning of the world. It refutes atheism because the universe was created by God. It refutes pantheism, the belief that God is everything and everything is God, for God is transcendent, apart from the and independent of the material universe to which he created. It refutes polytheism, for one God created all things. It refutes materialism, for matter had a beginning. It refutes dualism because God was alone when he created. It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. It refutes evolutionism because God created all things, end quote. The Hebrew word speaks of things that God did. He creates. Sometimes it it speaks of God uh, uh, manufacturing or forming what he already called into existence. But usually it speaks of God creating everything. And here it is. Just let your mind relax so I can stick in a little Latin in here. Ex nihilo. He created everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. He didn't need any matter. Like when you create some masterpiece cake, you got all your material from someplace. God doesn't even need any material. He can just say cake. And it's better than anyone, anybody ever created or made out of what was already created. Third, the heavens and the earth... 
were created by God. The end of Genesis 1, 1 tells us in general what God created. He's going to go on to explain, of course, in more detail what he created. What's going to happen is he's going to summarize each day of creation in the following uh, verses of Genesis. And then in chapter 2, he's going to give us an expanded version of the sixth day of creation. So he's just getting started here, but he's just laying out the broad brush strokes of creation. And when he says God created the heavens, the Bible uses heavens in three different ways. Sometimes it refers to the atmosphere. And we're going to see this as we get down in our text a little bit farther. The birds of the heavens. Well, of course, the birds don't fly in outer space. and They don't fly in the spiritual realm. I mean, they might, but our birds don't. And so there is an atmosphere that is the heavens. Secondly, there is outer space where all the stars and the planets and the comets and the nebulae, where they all exist out there and that vast, apparently unending, but not infinite universe that God has created. There is this, this space that we call the heavens. It's where the stars hang out. The Bible uses it in that way also. Other times it refers to the spiritual realm, the realm of heaven where God dwells. And that's why Paul says uh, in Corinthians that I was caught up to the third heaven, not the atmosphere, not to outer space, but to the very abode of God. So contrary to what Mormons will tell you, um, there are not three different levels of kind of exaltation in heaven. Now it's the spiritual realm. Everything from what we can tell from the Bible was created during the six days of creation. The spiritual as well as the physical. The angelic beings and creatures as well as the physical material things, plants and man and animals. All of it came into being. The word translated earth here is one of the most common words in the Old Testament. It appears some 2,500 times. It's used in the Bible sometimes to refer to soil or ground or land or a territory or region or country and even the underworld. And here it is used to describe the entire planet with all its constituents, parts, the whole globe and everything that makes up the world. The Bible uses the phrase heavens, the heavens and the earth 16 times. Three times in Genesis 1 and 2 in relationship to creation. Uh, verses that also refer back to it use the phrase like Exodus 20 verse 11 uh, when speaking of uh, the Sabbath day and uh, how uh, God came to rest from his labors. Not that he was tired, but he just ceased creating on the seventh day. Um, and, and of course, the Israelites are given the pattern of the Sabbath from creation. And Moses says this, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know, they don't really have a reason why um, there's a seven day work week. But the Bible, God said seven. Say, well, why? Because it took him six days and he rested on the seven. And that's why we have a seven day work week. That's the reason. That is the reason. And believe me, on each of those days of creation wasn't millions and billions of years. It'd make for a very long week. In 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. 
Idols are referred to as not creating the heavens and the earth. God describes himself as filling the heavens and the earth. When God speaks, the heavens and the earth are said to tremble. God's splendor is said to cover the heavens and the earth. And through Haggai the prophet, God promises to shake the heavens and the earth. The Bible also uses the phrase heavens, heavens and earth without the thes and they're just heaven and earth or heavens and earth um, without the, the heavens and the earth some 27 times and speaks of things like God as possessor of heaven and earth, as calling heaven and earth to be a witness against someone or some people. The Bible speaks of God as creating or making heaven and earth. He is called the God of heaven and earth. It speaks of God establishing the fixed patterns of heaven and earth. Jesus speaks of the Father as the Lord of heaven and earth. And Jesus taught that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never fail or pass away. Thomas Watson said, quote, to create requires infinite power. All the world cannot make a fly. God's power in creating is evident because he needs no instruments to work with. He can work without tools because he needs no matter to work upon. He creates matter and then works upon it because he works without labor. He spake and it was done. Psalm 33, 9, end quote. I love the phrase, all the world cannot make a fly. I love that phrase. If you were to say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to gather all the greatest scientists and thinkers and creators on the whole planet. We're going to give them as many resources as they need. We're going to get them all together in one place. And then what we're going to do is we're going to tell them we need you to make a fly that can fly. That's living, that can reproduce. We need to just make a replica fly from scratch. We'll give you the elements so you don't have to create anything ex nihilo. Here's the chemicals, go for it. And even if the, the, the survival of the planet was at stake, even if you, you promised each of them $100 billion if they could succeed, all the world could not make a single fly, a common house fly. They couldn't make a single wing of a common house fly. They can't even make a single cell of a common house fly. Not even one cell. And yet God spoke it all into existence. And it is fearfully and wonderfully made. That's why Thomas Watson has said, when mankind fell... And to sin, they fell so hard, their brains tumbled out. And that's why they believe in things like everything came from nothing. The Bible is clear. God designed and spoke everything, heaven and earth, and all they contain into existence out of nothing in six literal 24-hour periods. All creation is a billboard and says, I am God. I am creator. You better start seeking me. Because I am the one with whom you have to do. E.J. Young says the Bible, quote, tells us that God has created all things. That is why there is meaning in life and why there are absolute standards that do not change. God tells us what is right and what is wrong. And that is why there is meaning in life. That is why you and I believe in this God can very well say that our chief reasons for existence is to glorify him and enjoy him forever, end quote. Matthew Henry, commenting on our passage, gives these four practical 
reasons or applications for it. Lessons to learn. One, that atheism is folly and atheists are the greatest fools in nature. For they see there is a world that could not make itself and yet they will not own there is a God that made it. Doubtless they are without excuse. But the God of this world has blinded their minds. Secondly, that God is sovereign, Lord of all, by incontestable right. He is the creator, no doubt. He is the owner and possessor of heaven and earth. Three, that God, all, through God, all things are possible and therefore happy are the people that have him for their God and whose help and hope stand in his name. And four, that the God we serve is worthy of and yet is exalted far above all blessing and praise. If he made the world, he needs not our services nor can be benefited by them. And yet he justly requires them and deserves our praise. If all is of him, all must be of him and to him. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful that your word tells us how everything came into being, why we exist, why creation exists, why the world exists, why this world is the way it is, the consequences of sin, the hope of eternal life, the way of escape, the gospel train, the universal call to salvation, and the encouragement for those who have repented that there is a God who knew them before the foundation of the world. Father, I pray that as we consider these things, as we leave here today, our eyes would be open to creation. We would begin to look at trees and look at the symmetry and look at the leaves and look at the grass and look at all the marvelous things you have created that we would be constantly reminded by what we see that you created, that you are a great God, that when we stand and that we look in the mirror and we see our eye, that we would not be so foolish to think that it happened by chance. That we would see the order, the design, that a God who spoke the universe into existence and made things so perfect down to the microscopic level and so massive out into the far reaches of space sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for unworthy sinners. May we praise you, may we thank you, may we live for you because you are certainly the God of all creation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.